Welcome to Pierosa Podcast. I'm Mike. And this is Orlando. And we're on episode 113. Yeah. 113. I keep, I'm always fascinated how far along we are, but it's kind of crazy. And the book study, you know, we're definitely going to try to push things a little bit just because I feel like I, we could spend seriously a chapter an episode, but this time we're going to try to do five and six. Yeah. So we're going to try and do two episodes this, uh, this round. So hopefully, hopefully we can get through all of the important stuff without, I mean, no matter what, we're going to be skimming over and missing some great content. So if you haven't picked up the book and read it yourself, highly recommend you do it because Chris Voss is a much smarter man than either Orlando or, or me. So, uh, it's important that you, you, at least I'm negotiating. Right. I mean, of course, everybody's got their own. I mean, we're probably better at reselling than he is, or or well, maybe I'm better that. at certain literature than he is. Right. So, but but when it comes down to it, um, he's an expert. He wrote this book, and so I want to uh, see him do garage sales. How awesome would that be? Yeah, that'd be cool. Like if we, I know Chris Voss. If you ever catch this YouTube, DM us because we would love to take you along in a garage sale and see the power negotiation that he can have. Yeah, no, that'd be awesome. And then back to what I was saying. So okay. if you uh, if you haven't had a chance to pick it up, I mean, Orlando and I are just two guys who are talking about it. We're picking out the things that we think are great. Uh, but if you haven't had a chance to read uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, uh, we highly suggest that you check out the link below or uh, pick it up on Audible. Like I mentioned last time, there's a pretty cool Audible uh, program going right now where you can make some extra bucks on Amazon if you read three books. So anyways. Or listen um, three books, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's audible, so that's how you do that. I'm just checking. Yep. So, uh, anyways, um, yeah. So, episodes five are uh, chapter five and six. So, first one, chapter five, was uh, trigger the two words that immediately transform any negotiation. Uh, so, you know, I think I think we should uh, just call this episode like triggered. I guess so, but triggered in a good way, not triggered in a bad way. Right. So, I I I, I don't know. I got to tell you, this is such a thing that we all miss i i really i don't know we were talking before we started this podcast how you know maybe chapter five and chapter six like six is the better of them but i don't know because now that i'm thinking about the two words that we're going to talk about it's super powerful like i don't think you should skip five and go to six no i, I don't think anybody said we should do that no i know but you know sometimes when you're reading a book like you, sometimes i don't know if you've been asked i don't know if you read entire books but most of the time, I read probably 80 to 90% of a book. I'm ashamed of you. Well, there's some books that it's just not worth my time reading all of it, you know? You should pick up better books. There's enough books that are worth reading the whole thing. True, but, you know, sometimes people will say, hey, check out this book. And I'm like, oh, check it out, you know? And But what if the 10% you didn't read was the, like, life-changing part where you're like, man, it was okay. And yeah. you missed it. There's so many life-changing parts. I, you know, it's kind of one of those things that you don't know what you miss, so you don't miss it. That's okay. Yeah, yeah, I see. Uh, Orlando is is uh, is promoting ignorance is bliss. Not, not ignorance is bliss. I'm promoting being efficient. Oh, that's you. what that's what I like calling it. All right. Hey, so what do you what do you think? So I automatically resonated with what he's talking about just because I've had people tell me I need to change this and I change that. And when people tell me that, I don't care unless they really know me. Like unless they've been they've empathized with me, unless they you know been there. Like when I get a random person that kind of comes from the outside and just tries to tell me like, "Hey, I think you should be doing this." I'm kind of like, "Who are you? Like, why why even bother with me?" And so you know he mentioned that on page ninety seven, 
He talks about patience, right? I'm on the right chapter. I am on right, page 97. Uh, he talks about, you know, people that have open heart surgery and the doctor tells the patient, you know, this surgery isn't a cure. The only way to truly prolong your life is to make the following behavior changes. And then he says, he questions, you know, and do they? And he responds, Chris Voss responds, study after study has shown that no, nothing changes. Two years after the operation, more than 90% of patients haven't changed their lifestyle at all. That's after open heart surgery. Yeah. And this kind of goes by like this, this chapter opens up with this idea that um, negotiations don't change. People don't start to actually change until the negotiator um, actually accepts the person as they are. And not just in, in a sense of empathy of like, you know, like I understand you, but recognizing that that people as you know, a general rule are willing to give where what he calls positively conditioned to give answers that seem like they're in the affirmative. So like, yeah, I'll change my life but recognize that that they're not going to actually do it. They're saying what they're saying in order to kind of get you off their back mm -hmm. and they're not really going to change unless it's coming from them. And so part of this chapter is is using the trigger words. The trigger words are uh, that's right, right? And and he really focuses on there's a difference between the words that's right versus you're right. And, and that's one of the big things that's talked about here is oftentimes people get the you're right, you're right. And, and I notice this when I'm talking to like students all the time or, you know, when you're kind of giving a lecture, you're like, I know you're right. And he basically says like, that's the worst thing you could hear. Nine times out of 10, when somebody gives you the you're right, which is kind of like the patient after open heart surgery, it's like, I know you're right. I need to eat better as opposed to them acknowledging it themselves and then saying, you know what, the reason I'm here is because I've done this, this, and this. Yeah, that's right. And then you actually have a chance to pivot and move a negotiation in a positive direction. Yeah. And he talks about how that takes a long time. Right. And we'll, we'll talk about the examples, but it, it did bring up something that I thought about. So when I was in education, I was in private school education. One of the things was also uh, capital campaigns, always having to raise money. And I remember the director of development at some of the schools I had, you know, networked with, you know, I'd asked them like, how, how do you go about it? Like, how do you, how do you ask for money, especially somebody that you don't know or somebody that maybe doesn't have a, a student in the school. And they always, you know, the rule of thumb was always not even until like the fourth time, like you meet with that person. Because if right off the bat, you could take somebody to lunch, you're like, hey, you know, would you like to uh, donate? Like, that's not going to happen, right? Because, you know, you haven't taken those steps and we're, we're going to take you through those steps, right? Because he talks about creating a subtle epiphany and then eventually getting to a place that, you know, they're triggered and they eventually triggered in a good way. They eventually go, you know what? That's right. Instead of saying you're right. Because what's, what happened with these, you know, individuals I would talk to, they would tell me that sometimes they would get that donation maybe by the second or third. And they say, you know, you're right. I should donate some. And they would go donate something, but it never would be like these continuing donations or larger. It would be just this one, get you off my back, don't ask for money kind of again. But if they go to the fourth, the fifth, and eventually get them to buy in and go, you know, that's right. This is definitely something I need to be a part of. Those donations will last a lot longer. So if you're in any kind of thing where you got to ask people, you know, you got to negotiate for something. That's what Chris Voss is talking about here, that it takes these steps to get individuals to a place where they're willing to say, not you're right, and just write that check or agree to you, but to say that's right and to establish the long relationship. All right, so I'm going to get to the next part. Yeah, I mean, just going to that idea with the epiphany, I mean, part of it is is it's supposed to happen subtly in the sense that um, you're, there's steps that you take to move them down this path where they come to that aha moment, that like light bulb moment where they're the ones 
you're 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 manipulating in a, in not necessarily a bad way, but but you are manipulating and moving them towards a direction where they're you're going, guiding them. Yeah, they're going to they're going to make the realization that that they need to make in order to make the decisions that you need them to make. And so uh, he says that when it, if you do it right, when they get to that point, it is that that sudden epiphany, like they don't even recognize that it's happened. It's kind of subtle. It's not like you're forcing it down their throat and then they're like, you're right, right? And so that leads to the first way of doing that. And one of the ways to trigger a that's right is with a summary. Yeah, well, he talked, before we do that though, he talks about, he gives this example and, and the examples are great because, you know, in first they're very interesting, right? He talks about how this case, he has a case in the Philippines and these Islamic terrorists have, you know, kidnapped somebody and they want some money. And this is actually the case that makes him, I guess, like the next level, uh, you know, negotiator for, I don't think it's even the FBI. I think it's who the FBI calls when they need special teams uh, to do negotiations. So he's he's talking about this individual, uh, Sabaya, who wanted $10 million for a ransom. But notice what he says on page 99. He says, one crucial aspect of any negotiation is to figure out how your adversary arrived at this position or at his position, right? And it's, it's kind of interesting. And when you read through this, how it took time, like they had, you know, they had to get this terrorist to acknowledge that, you know, basically that not only that they were, that, you know, Chris Voss was right, but that everything that Chris Voss was saying was right. Like the story, like he was acknowledging, he was using that tactical empathy. So if you read through, uh, you know, <laughs> this terrorist, it was kind of interesting. He had talked about how like the police there would just kill anybody. Did you notice that one part? And he says, uh, <laughs> they rarely carried handcuffs. Like, well, that's kind of interesting, right? With, you know, read between the lines. But the, the key thing is Chris Voss was He's what he's doing is building everything from the previous chapter. So that's what I'm saying. You can't skip it because he's talking about tactical empathy. He's talking about labeling it. Right. And that's what he's getting used to with this terrorist. And eventually he gets this terrorist to eventually go, okay, you guys understand where I'm coming from. That's right. That's what I'm dealing with. And then the whole conversation is over. Well, the interesting thing is it was, wasn't even the terrorist that came to the, that's right moment. It was the negotiator that Chris. Oh, Voss, that's right. You're right. Sorry. Yeah, I jumped the gun. It, it was the negotiator that Chris Voss was kind of guiding and helping to negotiate with this terrorist that had to come to the, that's right moment. Um, and in fact, it was just a delaying tactic that allowed the, the person to escape from the terrorist and the terrorist uh, at one point when it was all said and done, when the, uh, when the guy escapes and gets away, kind of asks like, so did you get a promotion? Because <laughs> yeah. if not, you should have because I wanted to hurt this guy and I never did because you always kind of talked me out of it uh, and part of it was through those like even though the the original negotiator wanted to go in guns blazing uh, he took Chris Voss's advice after Chris Voss moved him to a that's right moment of you know we've got to approach this a different way and I need you to be the one to acknowledge that um, and then I love when it kind of goes into how how to do this and and one of the ways is uh, to trigger the that's right moment is with uh, a summary. And so the kind of the steps leading up to their six steps. And I really was interested in the first two because we've actually talked about the other steps throughout this story or throughout the, the, uh, book reviews that we've been doing so far. So the first one though was effective pauses. So silence is powerful and it's so true that people want to fill pauses and silences. And oftentimes if you can listen to something somebody says, or like present something and then give that silence, you allow time for things to sink in. 
right? So allow there to be pauses and don't just be so consumed with move, 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 but allow yourself to take a little bit of time. Let there be some pauses and silence. Allow the other person to think and process. And then while they're doing that, use minimal encouragement. So it kind of says, uh, use words like yes, okay, uh uh-huh, and I see, as opposed to kind of leading and forcing them. So when you're listening to something somebody is telling you, instead of poking and prodding for more or trying to already manipulate or guide them to say a certain thing, just listen. Uh Uh-huh. I see. And just give little encouragements enough to keep them talking, but not enough to necessarily feel like you're directing the conversation. Because when you do that, it allows you to move to mirroring, labeling, paraphrasing, and finally summarizing. And once you've listened well and you give that summary, that good summary after labeling and after mirroring, which are tactics we've talked about in previous episodes, then they come to that moment themselves where after listening to your summary, they say, that's right. Because it's all the things they've said, but you've phrased it in in a way that helps guide the direction or guide their decision a certain way. I just think it's so interesting because this is, if you ever, if you ever gone to any kind of marital counseling or conflict resolution, it's the same thing, no matter what. Like it's, it's always the same. So, you know, this is why he says, this is why the title of his book says negotiating as if your life depended on it. And he talks in that first chapter, how this applies to everything. Like you see this and those of you that have experienced any of that, where you, whether you've gone to, you know, counseling with, you know, cause of family issues or cause of marital issues or, you know, with your son or your daughter or whatever it is, it's the exact same thing. And to me, it spoke volumes that human nature is the same. And the reason we don't get it is because we're human. And so when you, this is, this isn't easy. Like, I, and I'm thinking about, you know, the patience that must have taken Chris Voss with this, you know, negotiator, because this isn't even the terrorist. He has to, he has to first, you know, finesse things with the negotiator in order for the negotiation to go right with the terrorist. Right. And so understand that this is going to take you time. And, and we talked about in the last podcast of the Level Up Review where you, ha- you have to be intentional. I mean, you could do the, okay, uh-huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when, when you're, you're being fake about it, it's pretty obvious, right? So you have to listen intentionally. So anyway, I just want to share that because I'm looking through this. I'm like, I, I've gone through this multiple times in different scenarios. And now we're talking about it once again. And it's because it's something that no matter how many ways you package it, it's still something that you have to really work at. Yeah. And, and looking at trying to move to the that's right. So there's probably some of our listeners that are thinking, okay, why do I need this? Why do I need to get somebody to a that's right moment? Mm-hmm. Especially if you're just thinking about certain types of negotiations, whether it's at a garage sale or whether it's with a client or whether it's negotiating a salary. And the nice thing is chapter six is a lot more like very easy, practical things you can do in instances like that, whether it's negotiating a salary. In fact, there's a whole section on that. Uh, but even this with a that's right moment is it It kind of talks about the, the that's right signal that negotiation could proceed from a deadlock. And I want you to think about how many times in your life, whether it's Uh, a relationship with somebody that you know, whether it's something you're trying to do with a client, whatever it is where you're at a deadlock, neither party will move. And if what Chris Voss is saying, when you can get somebody to a that's right moment, as opposed to maybe you can get them off your back by saying, yeah, I know you're right. But if you can paraphrase, summarize their situation and they say, that's right, then you can move from a deadlock. And and he gives example after example of how this works. Um, So uh, it's, just think about that. I mean, because none of what we're going to say is going to matter if you don't, if you can't kind of put to how would this affect my life and, and seeing how using these listening skills and getting to the that's right moment 
Um, even if you're talking to a significant other about issues that you're having, if you're at a deadlock, you're not going to move past a deadlock unless one or both parties get to a that's right moment. Agreed. And, uh, you know, just to paraphrase just what he says, he says, why is your right the worst answer? And we've said this multiple times, but I hope you guys understand that because, you know, I would say I like hearing you're right. Like, I think it's human nature. We want we want to be told we're right. Right. In, in whatever scenario. But usually you're right. Usually, I would say when it's a heated conflict, it's not to your advantage. And usually now if it's your right in a very contrite manner and something that's, you know, that you can obviously tell the individual has been persuaded, that's a little different. But most of the time, it's not of that manner. But but even think about that. Like if 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 you are scolding somebody, for instance, about something and trying to like lecture them and teach them something and they are, I know, you're right. Yeah, you're right. True, true. Even if they're serious, that's very different than I was wrong. Right? Like yeah, uh, you're right versus yeah. I was wrong. Or uh, kind of like that's right. I was wrong. It's kind of like that's exactly, right. Exactly. Right. And so there's a very big difference between uh, you're right and yeah, that's right. Right. Like that's right in this situation. He gives an example. I think a great example of his son who was a an offensive and defensive oh, right. lineman. Yeah. And as a lineman, basically he said his job as a lineman was just to smash people. He was always every single play, head down, like a goat, just ramming into people. And that was what he did. And the coach moved his son to a, a linebacker position, which instead of just hitting anybody, the goal is I've got to hit the guy with the ball. But his son was failing as a linebacker because anytime someone would come up to block him, he like took it as a challenge and immediately was like, all right, here comes somebody. I'm going to flatten him out. And he took it as like a source of pride. Mm -hmm. And so every time the coach and every time his dad was like, you have to stop, you need to run around the person trying to block you. He's like, I know you're right. And it wasn't until his dad was able to label I mean, first there's the silence, right? Like you did this, love the silence, do the labeling. And his dad gives the label and he says, it seems like maybe you feel that it's not manly or it's not brave to avoid a blocker. And it's, you're kind of proving how, how good you are by, by hitting the blocker. Yeah, that's right. And then his son recognizes the reason I'm doing this is because it's a pride issue. Whereas before, if you just tell him, you have to stop doing that. We're going to do better as a team. If you hit the, the guy with the ball, I know, I know you're right. But we haven't addressed the real issue, which was his son was playing for pride and not recognizing. And it, until he came to the, yeah, that's the reason I'm doing it. And he came up with it himself. Now his son has a new way of looking at it of, I behave this way for this reason. I can adjust my my behavior. And so um, I thought it was a great example because it's very practical. I mean, I just think of how many times you deal with somebody. I mean, even in negotiation, like if you're you're dealing with a boss and you're like, but I do this, this and this. I know you're right. You do. And, th and then you just get back and forth to the you're right, you're right moment, uh, you know, situation as opposed to getting to the root of the issue, which is kind of the point of the that's right, is to really find what is the core, what is the the root thing that the other person is that that's creating their behavior, the reason they're acting the way that they're acting. Well, you know, that reminds me of a scenario. So back when, <laughs> back when I was in whatever world you want to call the education world, uh, you know, there was this, uh, boss that we had and he was amazing. He was really good and he's really good at empathizing. And you walk into his office and he would tell you, you're right. You tell you, you walk out. Now I picked up that he was just telling me I'm right just to make me feel good. Like it wasn't like he's going to make anything change or anything happen. But a lot of people walked out of there and they're like, yeah. And then a week later, they'd be so angry, so mad. And they're like, he told me I was right. Like, why hasn't he done anything? And it just all comes full circle right now. Right. I mean, I always understood that. I would always tell people, I said, listen, you can't be mad. You got to understand this individual loves people. He doesn't want to get you upset. He really does care about you. 
but he also has his agenda as you, as your boss and he's going to make things happen the way he believes is best. And he's going to tell you, right? Cause you probably are right. But in this scenario, there isn't a right or wrong. It's what agenda is he going to move on? And so, you know, it would have been a lot better if individuals walked out of their understanding that you're right, man, you know, okay, cool. I'm done. And if they could get them to that's right, maybe. And I, d- I did have a couple scenarios where, you know, instead of, I, I didn't, I didn't implement any of this. I didn't even know about any of this, but you know, I would throw scenarios and I'd say, Hey, what if we did it this way? It seems it would be better for our school or, you know, in this scenario. And he would go, you know, that's right, Orlando. I, I think that's good. <laughs> then we implemented it and it worked out. So it's crazy how this comes full circle because now it all makes sense. Yeah. And I think, um, I mean, he gives two good examples, one for making a sale um, and then one for um, like kind of career success, trying to like move up in business and how to get the that's right. Uh, and again, I can't emphasize enough that this isn't just, you're not just looking for specific words, but you're looking for the meaning behind it. And so the reason for the that's right is to to get the person to acknowledge kind of the bottom line, the the real motives behind their decisions and their actions, and then using that as uh, kind of the springboard into real negotiation, especially when you're in that deadlock moment. Um, I kind of experienced that in a garage sale that I went to today. I was at a garage sale and I, I'm not going to go into the full story, but um, I was dealing with a person. They had a whole bunch of an item that I wanted. I mean, like lots of them, but their whole yard was just covered with stuff. It was like an estate sale. I guess you you could say it wasn't really a garage sale and the person didn't really want to budge. And so I had them get to the point where they acknowledge like, you've got so much stuff out here. Um, and then they were like, yeah, but th- these, these are selling and I'm willing to buy them all. Right. And so I got them to the point of like, okay, like, like, maybe like you could probably sell all these over the next couple of days um, or they, they might sit here and take up room. And I, and I, I, over time talking to them, got them to, to a place where they got to the, that's right. Like I would rather get rid of all this stuff, even if I, you're taking it for cheaper. Um, if, if it stays here, I've got to figure out what to do with all these boxes. What if they don't sell, right? Like I move them down that place. Like, it seems like you really do want to get rid of all this stuff that's out here. It doesn't seem like you're keeping any of it. Yeah, that's right. Right. Boom. Now I have somewhere to move. Right. Um, you know, some of these might sell, but, but if you get stuck with them, like you're going to have to figure out something to do. And so by doing that, you kind of get them to acknowledge, Hey, I don't want to have these at the end of the day. And so even in negotiations at garage sales or flea markets, um, you might be able to use something like a, that's right moment. If you can get them to acknowledge, Hey, I don't want to keep this item, which is why I have it out here in the first place. You might have a better chance of getting the price you want to get on it. Yeah. Or if you're a parent, (laughs) I mean, the worst thing as a parent, especially if you're a parent of teenagers, is getting the you're right. And then they do something behind your back. That was completely what you just spoke to them about. (laughs) And again, I I can't tell you. And I tell you from personal experience and not only as an educator or as an administrator. I mean, as administrator, I would hear the you're right, you're right, you're right. And then two weeks later, I'm suspending somebody or two weeks later, I'm getting a phone call about somebody. Right. And it's because the acknowledgement of that's right. Right. No change began in that individual or even with my own kids. When I tell them something and you're right, dad, whatever. (laughs) There's no whatever that follows, but you know, it's there. Right. But if if they see it, that's when it's going to happen. So, yeah, it's so crazy. I never even thought about how those two words are so so powerful. Just a switch in that one word. Mm. And I I don't think it's going to 100 percent of the time. You know, there are some people that. I know how to finesse others and know how to say the right things, 
But most of the time, if, if somebody says that's right, I think you're in a good place. Yeah. And especially at the end of this section, he even makes like a strong claim here where he says that's right in negotiations is better than a yes. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, and especially when because there's so many times like there's a, this push to get to yes. But in a lot of negotiations, we all know yes doesn't always mean absolutely. And we talked about that on a previous episode. But but a that's right allows for real negotiation to take place because you've acknowledged where they're at. And you can really move forward from there. And so, you know, it's you got to remember everything he says leading up to it, right? Because I'm sure even that negotiation you had at the garage sale, you eventually had to get to where they were, mm -hmm. right? I don't know if you ask questions about, like, how did you come across this? Why are you selling this? I don't know. But those are all lead-up questions to understanding how that person got there, right? And so he talks in the at the end of the chapter on page 112. He says, the more a person feels understood and positively affirmed in that understanding, the more likely that urge for constructive behavior will take hold. And that's where you followed up with, that's right, is better than a yes, strive for it. Right? So always remember that, you know, you're not trying to force that that's right. It's going to take time and it's going to take pain. According to what Chris Voss says, I can tell you from my own experience, like that's not something that you can just push out of people. It's just going to take some time and a lot, a lot of empathy. So people feel that you're, in the same place with them doesn't mean you agree with them, but that you at least are trying to see what they're trying to say. And then you arrive to the, that's right. Yeah, that's good. Um, so then we move on to chapter six, which um, I would say so far has been the most practical chapter. I mean, everything we've read so far has been extremely powerful. Um, some of it is a little bit more challenging to implement because it takes intentional effort. Uh, but a lot of the things that came out of uh, chapter six, I feel like were very practical um, and, and useful and it starts with, like we said, every single chapter has kind of like a big story, which is like, here's this negotiation tactic taking place in like a terrorist or kidnapping or something like that. And then a couple of smaller examples of here's how it might work for like a salesperson. Here's how it might work for like a career advancement. Um, and so this chapter is called Bend Their Reality. And before we jump into that chapter, I think it's a great break to let you know if you haven't been following us on Instagram yet, make sure to check us out on Instagram. And on TikTok and on Facebook, we're Pure Hustle Podcast. On Twitter, we are Pure Hustle Cast. If you want to give us a call about how these tactics work, I, I'd be interested. Of you know, if somebody says, you know, we really applied this and this is what happened, we we play it on the air. I think it'd be great to hear. So you can always give us a call six one nine seven three eleven seventy. That's six one nine seven three eleven seventy. Or you could you know shoot us an email. We're not the best at email, uh, just because the email just. You know, it gets overwhelming when you have a long message, but once you can hit play and you can hear a voicemail, it's a lot quicker. But you can email us at purosopodcast at gmail.com. That's purosopodcast at gmail.com. And uh, below, if you ever want to say thank you in a monetary way, there is a PayPal link. And thank you to all of you that have donated. And thank you for all the reviews that keep coming in. And I, I like the level up reviews. <laughs> We sometimes get individuals that are like, not only do we enjoy the reselling, but we love, you know, the level up reviews, which we're grateful because sometimes we're like, ah, how, how much longer are we going to do this? But hey, you know what? If it's bringing value, we want to keep doing this. We love doing it. I think we would be doing this either way, but uh, we really appreciate that. So hey, make sure to follow us on all those channels and get a hold of us if you like. All right, let's go to chapter six. All right. So the big story in this chapter, kind of the, the crazy something that we have, would have a hard time relating with, but uh, demonstrates that these tactics work. Um, and this chapter, again, is called uh, Been There Reality, is um, a, a story of a time, a period when the kidnappings were just rampant in Haiti, where uh, they were happening like 
every single day, many people were, were getting kidnapped and uh, it was during kind of like a regime change in government. And so people were calling into the FBI and calling into people like Chris Voss for kind of help. Like, how do we deal with all of these kidnappers uh, who are ransoming, you know, trying to get money from uh, the people that they're they're kidnapping and their families? And this story, the specific example they give is of uh, some kidnappers who kidnap an aunt and then ask the family, ask the the nephew or tell them, uh, we need $150,000 or we're going to uh, kill your aunt. And so um, a big part of this was kind of, you know, trying to figure out what is it that was actually causing all of these kidnappings. And that was part of what Chris Voss's job was. And he realized that understanding, just like we've talked about in the past, understanding the other side is really crucial. And he realized that these weren't like politically motivated kidnapper, kidnaps, that these were people who were kidnapping usually on Mondays or Tuesdays, and they were trying to get it resolved by Friday. And he, they put like two and two together and they realized these are people who are trying to basically party on the weekend. It's just so crazy. Right? Like, like they wanted money. And so, living, but, it was just wild. But once they knew that, they actually had some more ability to negotiate because they realized people are doing this and they really don't need $150,000 to party on the weekend. So they were able to, to use negotiation tactics to get people released for a much smaller amount of money, which helped ultimately deter... Uh, the kidnapping as opposed to um, keeping this this type of thing going. Uh, so that kind of leads us into this idea of don't, uh, don't, or bend the reality, and it leads to don't compromise, which kind of is where this whole idea of never split the difference comes from. So what were your thoughts on that? Well, I'm going to take, take it back a couple paragraphs. So one thing about negotiation is that I think there's two kinds of people, and if I'm labeling people, you know, call me out. But I think there's certain people that are like, things are A plus B equals C, like on everything in life. Like if I do A and I do B, C should happen, right? And and so whenever somebody throws something that like, no, that's not going to always be the case, you struggle with it, right? And negotiation is one of those places where Chris Voss says A plus B does not always equal C. Like there's different ways to approach it. And I think this chapter, he's, I think this is his strongest chapter so far. Like he doesn't, and we'll, I'll read a line in the on page uh, one sixteen where he's very clear about like this is not the way it goes. But he does say that on page one fourteen, he's talking about you know the people that were being ransomed and says so you know you pay the ransom and they release your relative, right? And he's like, uh, no, that's wrong. He's like, there's always leverage, right? So basically, it's not the it's not that simple. Like, hey, you pay, they're gonna escape, right? You there's other ways to do things. Right. Because you, there's no guarantees here. And then he says, negotiation is never a linear formula. Add X to Y to get Z. We all have irrational blind spots, hidden needs and undeveloped notions. And I was like, wow, like this isn't a formula. And you got this is why it makes it even more difficult, I think, because we in life always want the A plus B's and the equal C or whatever X is the, the Z here that he uses. But so as you're reading this, you know, don't think that when you're applying this, that it's going to be like very clean cut and easy. Like they're going to go, that's right. And then they're going to go to, okay, let's negotiate. Like it, it may not go that way. It might take different turns. So just something to think about. So going back to your question, when he talks about don't compromise, man, it was something I wish I had read like 10 years ago. Mm. I compromised so much as, as a teacher, as an administrator, uh, in, in various things that I had to deal with. You know, and I love how he says, because compromise, splitting the difference can lead to terrible outcomes, which is very true. 
I was once, uh, you know, I even I had this having other friends in a setting where somebody had said, you know, compromise should feel like a bad deal. Like you shouldn't walk away in a comp. Like basically, a good compromise is one where both parties feel like they didn't get everything they wanted. I'm like, and so I went, I went along with that. Mm. And I'm reading this and he says, compromise is often a bad deal. And the key thing we'll hit in this chapter is that no deal is better than a bad deal. Yeah. And, and that's really good is because, I mean, I would say even from a young age, he mentions, he makes the comment that uh, we are taught and almost like it's instilled in us that compromise is like a moral good. And we can see instances. And of course, there's always going to be instances where we could say like in a certain situation, a type, a type of compromise is a good thing. But, but compromise in itself, I mean, we, I mean, I remember when, you know, going through school and you're in history class and you're talking about like the, the founding of the constitution and talking about compromise and how the great compromise. Right. And so that's like, okay, like this is how everything should be. Every time it should be each party giving a little bit of something, but that doesn't always work, especially. But it led to the civil war. Well, I mean, that's true. Out there. I'm saying I, that only validates what Chris Voss is saying yeah. historically. Yeah. And so as opposed to coming to this idea, and part of it is people have this fear of like, it's better to compromise and actually get a deal, even though you're coming away with a bad deal. And he gives like a perfect, like silly example, but it's it's exactly right in that this is how it would look if you actually compromise all the time. And the compromise like example that he gives is if you like wearing brown shoes and your wife tells you like she'd rather you wear black shoes, the compromise would be to wear one brown shoe and one black shoe, right? Like that's silly. It doesn't work. Like you can't, it'd be better either situation, just brown or just black would have been better than this, this kind of in-between compromise. And so the- This I, is countercultural. You, you understand this. Yeah. Well, like, it, this is different. It is in the sense that, I mean, I think it is in some ways, but everybody recognizes this. Like there are certain things that people know they can't compromise. And the idea, again, nothing in this chapter is like totally like just be a shark and just destroy other people. No, and, not at all. And, and like make it so like you come away and like they walk away with nothing. The idea is for them to walk away with what what's right, you to walk away with what's right and it to be a good deal or to have no deal at all. But when you walk away with a compromise and both people walk away with something that's worse than they started with, really, it's actually not a good thing. And so... So let me let me just read it. I think he, I think he phrases in a way that like he leaves no question to it. And we're going to keep a pure hustle here. But... <laughs> <laughs> he says, I'm here to call BS on compromise right now. We don't compromise because it's right. We compromise because it's easy and because it saves face. We compromise in order to say that at least we got half the pie. Distilled to its essence, we compromise to be safe. Most people in negotiation are driven by fear or by desire to avoid pain. It's so true. Too few are driven by their actual goals. So don't settle. And here's a simple rule. Never split the difference, which is the title of the book. Creative solutions are almost always preceded by some degree of risk, annoyance, confusion, and conflict. Accommodation and compromise produce none of that. You've got to embrace the hard stuff. That's where the great deals are, and that's what great negotiators do. That's good. And I'm like, mic drop. Yeah. I mean, it was so good. And again, these are things that I, I do believe we are, see, I don't know if engineer is the right word, but it's kind of, you grow up like, you know, compromise, you walk away, everybody's happy, and you're good. Right. But you can walk away with a lose lose situation. Yep. I mean, I would say a lot of the time you can walk away with lose lose situation. Yeah. And, and in reality, if it's better for it's better to walk away with no deal at all than for both parties to actually end up suffering um, or for for a party to get exactly what they want. And the other to come to like 
like a, a better way, because oftentimes when people think of compromise, what they are thinking is to find that win-win. And if you can find that in any situation, and oftentimes there is a win-win, but that's usually not compromising. That's negotiation and like tactfully maneuvering to find like what's the best position to be in. Because if you just straight compromise, yeah, you don't actually end up in a win-win. And that's what people need to differentiate. Win-win is different than compromise. And so you can get to a win-win without compromise by just shifting expectations and understandings and roles. Um, and in this chapter, he gives specific things that you can do in order to get to those results without compromising. And the first one is deadlines and making time your ally. I loved this one because he kind of he explained some human psychology on how and why we act certain ways. And then he gave an example of how a lot of people think about deadlines who kind of have a little bit of understanding of the psychology, but why they're actually wrong. And it kind of goes in the face of what people think about negotiation. Uh, so what did you think about the uh, make time your ally section? I thought it was powerful. I thought it was great in the sense that, you know, I, maybe I'm jumping. So we'll go back and forth on this section. But I think if we start with you know, deadlines are almost never ironclad. How'd you feel about that phrase? Yeah, I mean, it's so true. I mean, I remember thinking, I mean, so many times in my life um, that something has to be, like there's deadlines, so you have to to like get something done by a certain time. And it's good, like deadlines aren't a bad thing. Deadlines actually, like we've talked about in the past uh, in other books and stuff, they push you to make decisions and to work in ways you wouldn't work before, but they also have negative consequences. And oftentimes like I've thought like, okay, I've missed a deadline to apply for this job or I've missed a deadline to apply for this, um, you know, program at the school I'm trying to get into or whatever it is just to send the email or to negotiate like, hey, can we work on this? And it still ends up working out like, oftentimes like a deadline isn't always like the end. Now there are times when it's like, sorry, our system, like you submitted it too late. Like the system doesn't accept it. There's nothing we can do. But usually when we're talking about negotiating and, and um, you're, you're dealing with things like salary, right? Like if you think about the fact that we've got to leave this meeting in the next five minutes that I have to talk to you with something figured out and you're like, well, I need to know by the end of the day or we're not gonna be able to do this usually those kinds of deadlines aren't real, no. right? Like you can get to say like, okay, we need another day extension in order to move this. Usually a place isn't going to say, well, sorry, we missed the deadline. Like you're fired. You know, if that's the case, well, they might. You, you probably weren't going to get the raise, so you right? shouldn't be there. Exactly. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like if you're, you're probably don't have very much negotiating power if they're going to fire you if you can't come to a decision, right? Like, especially you, when you're trying to do something right. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's good to, to realize that the deadlines are, powerful and useful. But here's the thing with them not being ironclad is they can be used on both sides as a kind of a tool because deadlines, um, like we've talked about in other books, they do cause you to actually get done. Like if you don't have a deadline or if you have a very long deadline, you might not act. Whereas if your deadline is like tomorrow, you're going to be acting much quicker. But the problem with acting quick is people make bad decisions when they're acting quickly. Yeah. And I think we need to separate what we're, we're meaning by deadlines in case, you know, our listeners haven't read this chapter because he's not talking about deadlines that are self-imposed like goals kind of, you know, we, you know, earlier in the year we talked about, here's the deadlines when we want to do this, when we want to do this, because if you're, you know, our, was our word last year discipline, right? <laughs> yeah. Podcast yep. word. Okay. Right. And, and part of discipline is you need to do have some kind of deadlines or goals, right? So he's not talking about those. Those are ones you definitely want to keep, or at least keep yourself accountable. Now you can change your mind. And I think change your mind is a powerful thing if it's done for the right reason, but he's talking about negotiations for deadlines. I mean, negotiate, no deadlines for negotiations. 
right? That's what he saw. Make sure you separate the two because that's a big deal. And, and I like the story he gives about this individual that's trying to make a deal with it in Japan. So he's talking about how the, well, there's actually two stories here, but there's that one story. He goes there and he doesn't know the deadline. Am I right? We wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for this episode. Yeah, so a guy goes and the the idea, and this is where a lot of people go wrong with the idea of deadlines, is the the people in Japan who are negotiating with him asked him, well, how long are you going to be here for? And he told them one week, seven days. And so they spent the first like six and a half days just kind of partying with him and giving, whining and dining him. And then basically in the the like cab ride to the airport, that's when they negotiated the deal, right? And so he's rushed. He's got to make this decision before he leaves. And so the thing that comes from that is a lot of people then falsely believe it's better not to tell people your deadline. But then he explains it's actually not right. Like you do need to give them a deadline, but you need to know their deadline too, because if only one side has a deadline, it it creates an unfair thing. It's actually better if both sides understand each other's deadlines and then allows you to, to move knowing that like your deadline isn't necessarily ironclad. Like you can tell somebody, Hey, um, you need to make this decision within a week understand that that needs to happen, but that you can move that deadline if necessary. Did you find that a little confusing? No. The deadline talk where like you, like you, they're not ironclad, but both need to know it. So you're saying both, and I'm just trying to clarify here for, you know, our listeners, if, if you read the chapter, it makes sense. But so it's both parties have to know deadlines, but they don't have to be agreed upon or you shouldn't be rushed to meet that deadline. Is that what Chris yeah, was well, saying? Specifically with this example, because like, the, the one argument people would make with that idea of the man who went to Japan and he basically was forced to make this negotiation because the idea was his boss would have been upset if he'd have flown back home to America and didn't have the contract, right? Like, so it was better for him to make a deal, even if it was a bad deal, than to make no deal, right? Was the falsely what he believed. The better thing to do would be to recognize that the other side they actually have a deadline too, right? Like the the people you're negotiating with, they would actually also be unhappy if they walk away with no deal. So if you're in a position where it's like, you're on the cab ride, you can't come to a good deal, it's better to say like, well, I guess we're going to have to extend this because it's not like the other side is going to say, well, then we're done. We're walking away from it, right? Because they need the deal just as badly as you do, but they've cornered you into feeling like you're under time pressure when they actually are too. Mm -hmm. And so- you can't just not give them a deadline because then the other side, what makes this bad is if you don't give them your deadline, you give the false sense that they don't need to make decisions. So the reason why it's good to give somebody a deadline is you can actually use that as the tool to put them under a time constraint. So if you say like, I need to know this by the end of the day, they're more likely to just make a deal, even if it's a bad deal for them, than to, if you don't give them a deadline at all, then they have more time to think and move forward. So the reason you give your deadline is because it pushes, puts them in a, in that time constraint that they have to act under, but you also need to understand what their deadline is so that you can, you know. But on your end, you don't have to worry about the deadline. <laughs> Basically, the deadline is the tool for you to use on them, but not the tool to control what you decide. Right. right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yep. I just wanted to clarify that because, you know, it, it's it's kind of like, hey, deadlines are good. No, they're not good. Oh, they're good. Okay, they're not. So that's basically deadline is your tool for you to use how you want, basically. Yeah. And so if you can ever get into a position where it's like that, like I need to know this or like we have to come to this conclusion um, and you put them under a deadline, it's better as opposed to what was for a long time the 
what people thought was just don't tell them your deadline. Well, if you don't tell them your deadline, then you're not putting them under that, that time constraint. So, I mean, if you don't know their deadline, that might not be a good thing because if you know that they're under pressure, if you have a week to figure something out and they only have one day to figure it out, you're in an even more powerful oh, yeah. position, mm -hmm. right? So that's where, that's where knowing their deadline is good, but you, you do want them to know your deadline that you have for them because then you are putting them under kind of the gun as it were, like they have to make a decision. They, they, they have no choice. Um, and then I like what he talks about. Like you can even utilize things like deadlines that people put themselves under or certain industries put themselves under to your advantage, such as car dealerships, right? He says like car dealers use cars, people or, or just car salesmen in general um, at the end of the month, right? They've got to try and they're about ready to be assessed. They've got to get certain numbers. They're going to be more likely to make a, a bad deal for them or not as good of a deal for them. And you will get a better deal because they're under that time constraint or certain business companies when it gets close to Q4, like you might be able or not Q4, but end of a quarter, I should say, as it gets close to an end of a quarter, people are more likely to act because they need to get like some cash flow coming in to say like, look at our quarter metrics, right? So um, you can utilize deadlines that people are under to your advantage. Well, even the car dealership. I mean, I've, I've purchased a few cars and you know, it's a long, it's an all day ordeal, right? And there's, you know, two tactics that are used and there, we have friends that work at dealerships, but one is never let people leave the lot, right? So that's a power play on your part when you leave. And I've left and it's actually worked to my advantage and I got a better deal, right? I mean, it wasn't the <coughs> ultimate deal, but the price already started getting knocking down by me just leaving. The second part is you can go into the late hours and not come to an agreement. I've, I've done it before where I've made it till like 10 o'clock at night. And they're, you know, they're trying to wrap things up. They got to go home. And well, if you don't come up with the deal, they're scared of you leaving and never coming back. Mm. Right. So that deadline works to your advantage. And I'm not saying, you know, if you get a good deal early on, move on it. Uh, but actually the stuff he talks about later, it applies exactly to buying a car, applies to negotiation business salary. So we'll get to that. All right. What do you think about the emotion part? That decisions are not rational. Um, Did I skip? Yes, or are we skipping no such thing as fair? Oh, no, we should talk about no such thing as fair. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think um, just one last thing I wanted to say about the, okay. uh, the deadline, the deadline All right. um, was um, hiding a deadline means you're negotiating with yourself and you always lose when you do so. Right. And so uh, kind of the idea is if, if they don't know your deadline, then you're the one on your own making, like doing the negotiation. Like, well, if they don't make this decision by this time, I'm going to have to. And when you negotiate with yourself, according to Chris Voss, you're going to lose. Uh, so do the negotiation with them, right? Like that's mm -hmm. better than that's trying good. to negotiate with yourself because then you're going to talk yourself into lower and lower prices or worse and worse deals. All right. So um, we get into this idea of fair, right? And I love this idea because this is so true. Like people have this, this belief that there's such thing as fair, that like, that there has to be um, what they get needs to be fair. And he gives this example of this task that he does with his students at college. He gives each one of, uh, he pairs students up. One of them is a proposer and the other is an acceptor. And he gives the proposer a $10 bill and he says, you need to come to an agreement with your acceptor, right? Um, you could give them, it has to be even amounts of money. You can, you can do a nine. I keep nine, you get one. I keep eight, you get two, but it has to be like even dollar. And if you can't come to an agreement, then I take the money at the end. Right. And he says, the amazing thing is people use emotions when they do this because nobody will ever accept a deal. That's not like perfectly fair. 
when he says what you're really doing is you're ignoring all of logic in order to make a decision. Because if I offer you $1, you didn't have $1, you're getting, it's for nothing, right? I'm saying you can have a dollar. If they say no to it, then there's no money given at all, right? Like why would you turn down a dollar for $0? Well, the reason is people have this idea of like, well, then why do you get nine? Like I should get five, you get five. It has to be fair. Even though reality is none of it's yours. Like he's, he's giving it to you, but because it's like, but he gets to keep more than me. That's not fair. And they explain that people always make decisions based off of emotions as opposed to logic. Well, yeah. And (laughs) the statement, it's, it's a broad brush, but it's true. He says at the very end of page 121, he says, we're all irrational, all emotional. Yeah. And they actually did a study and found that if people who had um, injury, brain injury and the part of your brain that creates emotions, um, are actually incapable of making decisions. That these are people who can look at all the facts, they can logically tell you like, this is what I should do, but they can't even make the simplest decisions, like what color clothes to wear. Like They don't make any decisions at all, even though their logical part of their brain hasn't been damaged. And it shows that even though we can rationalize with logic, decisions are actually made with emotions. And so when you recognize that, when you recognize emotions are a key portion of it, that's a powerful tool to recognize in yourself and then to use on other people. And he gives, uh, going into this, three examples of how people use what he calls the F-bomb or the word fair in negotiations and only one of the three ways is actually useful. Yeah, it's kind of... <laughs> so I, I love the story he weaves in here. Uh, the story about Robin Williams, I thought yeah. was kind of interesting because I didn't know this. Actually, my, my son knew all about this. I'm like, all right. So the story that he shares... Uh, is that Robin Williams was offered, you know, he's a voice in Aladdin and he wanted to leave something wonderful behind for his kids. He said he did the voice for a cut rate fee of $75,000, far below his usual $8 million payday. And he was all good with it. And then the movie blew up. And then Robin Williams felt that it was unfair. Yeah. Yeah. If the, he was like, he was, he negotiated this price, $75,000. He was happy with it because. Think about it. 75000 Yeah. I mean. And, and and voice work for for actors is like the gig, like because it's it's such an compared to the amount of time they have to give up, yeah. like it's one of the easiest jobs they can do. Um, so he's like, this is great because I'm doing it because I want to leave something to my kids. I want them to enjoy being able to see me in a cartoon, and I'm still making a lot of money doing it. And he was fine with it, yeah. Until the movie was a blockbuster hit, made made tens of millions of dollars, and then it was like, wait a minute, I should get paid more. Where. That wasn't what was negotiated. And the, the truth is people act like that all the time. People often feel they're fine with something until they feel like there's a sense of injustice. And then what was okay all of a sudden becomes, wait a minute, that's not fair, right? And so um, isn't that crazy that that's how we act though? Like we can be okay with something. And he gives an example of if I were to tell you like people, it, it all comes to the way I, 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 we, the relationship between something, right? So if I were to, he gives an example, if I were to sell you this cup, it's like, honestly, like in your heart of hearts, I've got this cup here. And if this wasn't Pierce the podcast, cause that's priceless, but um, <laughs> in your heart of hearts, like how much would you pay for this cup? Like this, this mug I have. And he says, people would say like, I don't know, like three fifty maybe. And he goes, all right, now if I want to buy the cup from you, um, how much would you like, how much would it be worth? And people always go to like, I don't know, five to $7, right? Because they own it. All of a sudden the value is different because the relationship of that item. The other example that he gives is if I were to ask you to run a favor for me, like, Hey, like 10 minutes, can you just run, uh, get me a cup of coffee? Uh, I'll pay you like 20 bucks or whatever. And you do the math and you're like, Oh my goodness, like I'm getting paid like an insane amount of money, right? Like this easy thing. 
I'm getting like, he, I think he even said like, it could be like what, $400 an hour. Like if I count like how much I'm getting paid for the amount of time it took me to actually do this thing. Like people think it's a, a favor, but he goes, but then if you realize that what I asked you to do during that time, you were doing it, you made me like a million dollars. You'd be like, wait a minute, you only paid me $20. That's not fair. Right. When you were totally fine with 20 bucks, when it was just get you a cup of coffee, but it, if it's the exact same amount of work, go here and hand this paper to them. And you realize they just made millions of dollars. It's like, wait a minute, I should get a, a bigger cut of it. And it's all about emotions, how we perceive our position in the situation. Isn't that crazy? No, it is. I, and, but I love how he uses those examples to kind of frame the power of the word fair, right? And he gives three examples in this chapter, right? The first one is when you're trying to negotiate a deal using the word, like you're looking to get what's fair, mm -hmm. right? And it, it's kind of interesting because we, I think we use that a lot. I use that at garage sales. I use it, you know, when I'm making bulk buys, I, I'll throw out there like, well, I'm just trying to get, I'm just trying to figure out what's fair for both of us. And it, that kind of calms things down. Right. Because if, if you go, yeah, I'm just trying to get, you know, the lowest price for this. so I can sell it for a, way more money than what you're going to make on this. Like that's not going to work. <laughs> and, and no one should do that. No one does that anyways. But when you throw the word fair, you know, people want what's fair. Right? Yeah. And, but then people can use it almost negatively when they say things like, Hey, I gave you a fair price on this. Well, but then he answers that, right. How to do anyways. You no, know, but you're right. This is why I'm dealing with Amazon returns. I, We'll talk about this when we talk about Q4 in an update in our later episode about Q4, our themed episode. But I really believe that, you know, people right now with, and this is our reselling podcast, that with the technology that's out there, people can really know what the prices are. And when they they think the prices are unfair, I really think there's going to be a lot more returns. Mm. Just throwing it out there because fair, and he, he talked about that, right? He talked about the mug, like, hey, you just sold that to me. And I mean, I just bought that from you and now you're going to sell it back to me for more. Like, that's kind of crazy. Like, how can you do that? Anyways, the reaction he gives, the second part he talks about how to deal with fair is if somebody says, well, this is fair, you have a follow-up, right? And the follow-up is like, explain to me why you think it's not fair. I think that that's, again, that calms people down because it's kind of like when we talked about the other chapter about using the word no, when people feel the, when you use the word no, they feel empowered. I think when people are able to explain out why they think something is not fair, it just, it, it calms everyone down instead of this huge sense of injustice. I don't know. That's how I read that part. You think I'm yeah. off? No, that's right. And then finally, the, the kind of the best way of doing it as opposed to um, simply like, I want what's fair for both of us is, you know, one, don't do the like, what. Well, I gave you a fair price. You should just accept it. But what's actually better, and it kind of goes back to that, like, that? that self audit. I mean, people, I hear people do that all no, the time. I know, I've been, I've been, sales, right? I, no, I have. I know like, it's crazy. Yeah. Where you offer somebody something like, no, and you're like, no, that's a fair price. Right. And it's like, like you lost. Yeah. Like yeah. why, why, why did you even say that? Like yeah. you lost, you're done. Yeah. Or you really think that's fair. Whereas the, the proper way that he says, the best way you can do it is to say like, Hey, I want to make sure like during this negotiation, you feel like you're being, being treated fairly at all times. If you ever feel like I'm not treating you fair, please let me know so that we can correct it. Right. Cause then you're, you're basically getting them, you're helping them put their walls down, right. Where they don't feel like, you know, they're on the defensive, but it's like, Hey, I want to make sure you're treated fairly. And you're putting all of the attention on like, I want, I want to make sure you get the best out of this as and, opposed to both of us. And I wanted to add that takes a lot, a lot of self-control, a lot of self-control. I, I, you know, and maybe it's just me, but when I, when I get the sense that, you know, somebody isn't going to go along with the negotiation or I feel like they're ripping me off and, they, and vice versa or injustice, like I, I can, you know, I've talked about in the other podcasts, like things will escalate pretty quick. Mm. 
right? And the key thing in all of this negotiation, I mean, if you've heard Chris Voss talk, like I'm sure he escalates at some point, but I'm sure when he's negotiating, right? We talked about the late night DJ voice. Mm. Like we haven't gone back to that, but you have to practice self-control for this to work because when we're talking about things that are fair, you can get pretty heated. Like no one likes to be treated unfair. No one. So, I mean, maybe some of you do, but for the most part, I don't think people do. <laughs> All right, let's keep, let's go to, I don't know, you ready to bend the reality or do you want to talk about? Yeah, no, bend the reality is great. So um, this is, um, and I see you have it highlighted too. So talk to me about prospect theory. <laughs> just throw it out there. All right. So the th I'm just going to read what he says. The theory argues that people are drawn to sure things over probabilities, even when the probability is a better choice. Right. Am I talking about the right one? Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, he calls it the certainty effect, but I think we're talking about the same thing. Right. Yeah, so the prospect theory has a few different parts yeah. to it. Okay. Certainty so, effect is part of it. So th this is a scenario when, you know, you get to a place and you're offered one where there's greater risk. Like, hey, you can spend the this amount of money and make this much more, or you can just take this and go home. It's kind of like, give a simple example, like $25,000 pyramid. <laughs> I don't know if you ever watched that show or who wants to be a millionaire or any of those shows, right? They have a pretty good chance of making a million dollars, but they settle for the 10,000, right? And based on how things are going, probability is, you know, they may make it. Now, granted, all these shows are rigged, okay, to a certain point. But he's he's talking about that people are more willing to take the safe, right, the safe bet, or he's causing, you know, they, and we'll talk about loss aversion here a little bit too, instead of going for that, even though the more rational one would be the the probability one. Right. Did I hit that right? Yeah. And so prospect theory involves the certainty effect and loss aversion, right? Both of those are kind of like two sides of the same coin. And so the certainty effect, yeah, is this idea that that you'll take what's certain over what's not certain, even if it's what's certain isn't necessarily good for you, or you'll avoid loss even at the risk of um, less risk for reward, right? Like you're, you're more willing to take risk to avoid loss then less risk for reward. And he gives the specific example and the numbers can be a little hard to follow if you're not like reading it on the a page, but it makes total sense that if somebody, if you were to tell somebody they have 95% chance of receiving 10,000 or hundred percent chance of getting 9,499, we're talking about like $1 difference in like the percentage wise, right? Cause 95. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you're that, right. that people would be more willing to take the hundred percent chance than the, the, the 95% chance over that $1 difference, but when it comes to losing money, so if you were to tell somebody they have a 95% chance of losing 10,000 or a 100% chance of losing 9,499, they make the opposite choice. They'll they'll risk the bigger 95% option to avoid the loss, right? And so people do that like you and and where that becomes useful to recognize that people avoid losses when it comes to negotiation, if you present something in a way of if you don't take this, here's what you'll lose. And you give that to them first, they're more likely to take the deal because they're afraid that they're going to lose something. So if you were to say like, if you do this, this thing with me, you can make this amount of money and this amount of money and do this. But if you start the negotiation of, if you don't do this, here's the amount you're going to lose. It's totally different in the way people are going to react. People are more likely to avoid the loss than to take a risk for reward, even if the risk they're taking is less. Mm -hmm. Agreed. I mean, it happens all the time in negotiations. I'm willing to buy out everything or I'm willing to spend this amount here. And you know, and whenever I negotiate, you know, these deals, the, if I start with that, then it's like, okay, let's talk. 
right? But it, it, if you go with it, if it was something that's not concrete, he talks about it. Like if there's, if there, if the individual that you're negotiating with does not see or feel that they're gonna lose, like you're going nowhere in the negotiation. But you know, it take again, it takes practice, it takes time to get there. Now, I did like, I don't know, I'm ready to jump to the next part because it's really good. Did you want to share more on that? When you say jump to the next part, what do you mean? They, they anchor their emotions. Yeah, that, that goes into it. Okay. This is all. So, <laughs> but it, it's it's funny because, you know, he talks about in, I don't know, chapter two or three, there's late night DJ voice and then there's like jovial, go lucky, play around. And, you know, he, he talks about how he had to call certain people and tell them that they were going to be uh, get, getting less money or getting paid less. Right. Right. But he, he does it in this very kind of, like it's not super serious way, right? He kind of, he, he removes all the, he takes, he puts all the negatives up front, right? And he says, I got a lousy proposition for you. And then he pauses. By the time we get off the phone, you're going to think I'm a lousy businessman. You're going to think I can't budget or plan. You're going to think Chris Voss is a big talker, blah, blah, blah. And he, he goes on and on and on. And I, I think that it's very important because you're trying to anger, you're trying to get people, again, this is empathy, right? Because Whenever you're making a deal with someone, right, it, you know, especially I feel like when it's when you're way off and you approach people and go, hey, you're probably not going to like what I'm going to the number, you know, what I'm going to share with you. I'm not going to say the number because we'll talk about not giving the first number. Voss validates that again. Um, but, uh, you know, usually and I'm not saying I'm an expert in this, but when I talk to people and I know that we're far apart, I don't stop. I always go with, you know, this is probably going to offend you. Like, you know, you're probably going to never want to see me again. And, you know, I joke around. I don't do it in this whole like, yeah, this is just going to be a bad deal for you. Right. I go like, hey, this is really this is probably going to bother. You're probably going to lose sleep over what I'm going to tell you right now. Like, you're going to wish I never showed up. But here, here's what. And then it kind of breaks down. It softens things. And that's what Chris Voss is kind of pushing here because then you're anchoring that emotion. Right. You're settling things down and then you can bring in the negotiation process. Yeah. And specifically when it comes to anchoring their emotion, you use that audit acknowledgement to acknowledge all of their fears. And then you use the other side's loss aversion so they'll jump mm -hmm. at the chance to avoid it, right? So going back to that idea of loss avoidance. And so that example he gives originally says these people are used to being paid like $2,000 a day. He says his budget only allowed him to pay $500 a day, which is why he does that self audit, right? Like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm terrible. And then he goes on to say this. He says, I wanted to bring this opportunity, opportunity to you before I took it to someone else. Already, he's getting them to think of this loss aversion, right? Like, yep. oh, if I don't take this, if I don't take this, somebody else might. And he says, so it's a suddenly call wasn't about the, them being cut from 2,000 to 500, but from not losing the 500, right? So that's crazy. Yeah. And then he how says, fast he moves. Exactly. So it's like, hey, look, I, I know this is how much you normally get, but like, this is how much I have to offer. And I don't want somebody else to, to, to take this before I call anybody else. Um, is this something you're willing to do, right? So that loss aversion is like, instead of them thinking like, hey, I'm not getting paid what I'm worth. It's like somebody else might get this money that I could be getting, right? And so utilize that loss version. And we do this all the time, a lot of times um, subconsciously or you're not even really, I guess, articulating that that's what we're doing. But when we say things at garage sales, like, um, you know, like I can pay you this right now. Like we can make the deal. We can get this off of your property. You don't ever have to see it again, right? Like I have like, you can start pulling out the money. If you say like, Hey, I'll give you $50 for this. And they're like 75, like pull out the money, have it in your hand. You're like, I mean, I could do 50 and then start to put it away. Right. Like immediately they went from, they want a hundred from this to now they're losing $50. Mm -hmm. 
right? So if you can change their thought process and utilize that loss aversion, it's very, and, very helpful. And to give you the opposite side of that, so I had a, a major deal go down this past week and uh, I had something that an individual wanted, but they were lagging on their response to come get it. And and then I had another individual, so I kind of played these two <laughs> people against each other. And so one person, you know, they said, hey, I can only do this much. I'm like, well, actually, this other individual, which was true, is showing up and they're willing to give me this. Now, if you're able to match that and show up, then it's yours. But if you don't show up today, then I'm sorry, I'm going to have to go with this other deal. And sure enough, like that that was enough in the negotiation. That individual realized that they were going to lose out because it was a good deal. What I had what I had flipped for this individual locally they're, they're probably either going to save themselves a grand or whatever. They're going to save themselves good money or they're going to be able to flip it themselves. Right. And so, again, it was something concrete that they knew they were going to lose that I played to my advantage and it worked. So there's two sides to that coin. OK, so let's talk about let the other guy go first. Yeah, that's good. And I think this one's great because we've we've been saying this for a long time when it comes to negotiations and um, different types of negotiations are different, of course. Uh, but Chris Voss does validate the idea of not giving the first number, especially when it's something like salary negotiation or, um, you know, when you're trying to negotiate a big deal. He suggests um, letting them go first because that's one, sometimes you just get lucky, right? Like you that were was willing good, to pay a certain amount. How many amount. times have we experienced yeah, that? It happens How all the time. That's, I mean, I feel like that's the number one reason we do it. And the other reason is. So let's explain go lucky, though, real quick. Get lucky. Okay. For somebody, no, you just you want to explain it or want me to explain it? Um, you might get lucky and they'll offer you more than you were expecting, or you can buy it for less than you're expecting. There you go. Okay, that's all. I just want to I want people because you know, if you haven't read the book, you have no idea what we're talking about. Get lucky. It's basically you go somewhere and you ask somebody, like, how much, you know, do you want to sell this for? And if you give the first number, you have no idea what they might say. Mm. And that's what he's saying. Anyways, I wanted to explain that because if you didn't read the book, you don't know what we're talking about. So, all right, keep going. All right. I just want to explain it through because I know some of you are listening because you're listening. Like you don't, you didn't pick up the book and some of you have picked up the book. Yeah, but so. I, I, I still, I think that's like the most easy thing. I don't know. Next one. Like, okay, you know hey, don't give the first number because you might get lucky with what they give you. Right. Like okay. oh, that's true. That Okay. That's See, like that was least. really easy to understand. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> hey, I care about our listeners. Okay. All right. Keep going. I just worried we insulted our listeners. No, that's we all. didn't insult um, anyone. So anyway, so it suggests letting them give the other number, let the other side anchor the negotiation because then it gives you a place to move. Right. And it, this happens all the time. I made this mistake. I think I mentioned on the podcast before, uh, but I was offered a certain amount of money uh, for a, uh, a job that I got, you know, when I was right out of high school. Um, and actually, I think that it started with them like saying, like, how much would you would you do? Would you take? And I was like thinking, OK, like I'm currently making like fifteen dollars an hour. It'd be amazing if I could be making 18. Like that was the number I had in my head. So that the salary I asked for was like for eighteen dollars an hour. And they're like, yeah, no problem. Like we can give you that. Right. And they gave me that. And then like I helped hire the same position like several months later. And I was helping like them promote somebody else into the same position I was in. And they showed me their salary range. And I was way under Right. Like, and instead of they like, worked you. yeah, they worked me. Right. And, and it was kind of worse because I got to see like, Ooh, and they're like, yeah, here's the number. So if they ask for this, like we can go up to this amount. And so if I would have been a little bit more like, and, and sometimes even not even taking the first number, cause that he gives that as an example too, of like using a range, um, 
if you do have to give the first number, because sometimes there is no choice, right? Like we could talk about the fact that like it's it's best if possible not to give the first number, but sometimes even for specifically says like sharks, like people who are like really good at negotiating, they will give the first number because once you give a number, um, you do have a certain amount of of especially if it's huge numbers. He's talking about like going really big one direction or the other, which is sometimes why it's like if somebody forces you to give the first number, you're like, okay, how about a dollar, right? Like, because then they know they can't come up too high from there. So there is an aspect to that. And he specifically uses this idea of anchoring and adjustment where people, like if you were to give somebody a series of numbers, if you were to say eight times, seven times, six times, five times, four, and then have them guess what like that number would be as opposed to if you started with like one times two times three times four times five, if you start really big, people have, they, they immediately think it's a higher because they're going to go with whatever was first. So if you're offering to like, like, Hey, I'll do this job for X amount of money, start as high as you can, because in their mind, instead of like, let's just meet in the middle, like it's going to be a higher number. Whereas if you, if, if the number starts really low, then both people's mind, they're not thinking as big. So psychologically, we think closer to the number we see first. So if you can give a really big number, if you're trying to, um, trying to sell something as opposed to if you're trying to buy something, you want to give that, get that really low number first, right? Because if it's really, really big, you know, you're not moving much from there. And you know that even with like garage sales, if you were to ask like how much for something and you're willing to pay them maybe $20 and they start off with 200, you know, this negotiation is probably not going to go well, right? Because yeah, I mean, you could start with like, so we're probably not going to be able to make a deal, but you know, what is the lowest you'd entertain? And, and, you know, you, you start working it. Right. I wouldn't, I, I used to walk away from that. I would say we're too far apart, but you don't know because yes, they're trying to anchor. I would say you just got to dishevel it, <laughs> like remove that anchor and bring back the anchor. Cause then if they tell you, then you get into the other part. I mean, this works at establishing a range, right? So let's say, you know, somebody says 200 and you're at 20, right? And then he's talking about, he's talking about salaries, right? You give your bottom number, which should be a high number. And then you give an absurd number. Mm. Right. And usually when you're offering salary, so he gives the example of, you know, you should always give ranges, right? So one range is, you know, Jerry might have said a top places like X for people in this job get between 130,000 and 170,000. Right. So the company, I mean, this is what Chris Voss has given this example would go, oh, we'll, we'll pay him 130,000 when in actuality, like that's what he wanted. Right. Well, and think about that. Like, cause that's, that's if you're forced to give a number, right? Cause sometimes you can't always not give a number. And you're kind of in a position where like, I have to give a number. So if you're doing a negotiation like that and somebody's like, how much would you pay for this? Right. And you're like, well, I'd really be willing to pay 20, but you're like, I don't know, maybe like five to 15 bucks knowing that like, they're going to go, okay, I'll do 15. Right. Because you gave such a low number five. And then the opposite is true. If you're trying to sell something, right. If you're trying to sell something and you're like, I don't know, I would take any, I'm thinking this thing is probably worth like anywhere from a hundred to $300. Somebody might be like, Oh, well, would you take a hundred if that's already the high end of what you're giving, right? By giving that absurd number, um, at the other end, you're pushing them more towards that one you're looking for. Yeah. I think you've got to play every scenario different. You know, you've seen me do this where somebody will ask me how much you're willing to pay for it. And I'm like, well, I'm willing to pay the lowest amount that I need to pay. Yeah. But have you ever actually tried that one without, so like, let's say like you're trying to get them to well, like, I'm joking with them though. I don't, I'm not serious about it. Like I, ha ha ha. And then it breaks down the barrier. But like, think about like, I, I, I haven't actually used this phrase, but like, I want to use it now because okay. before, like when somebody said like, well, what's the lowest you'll give? And of course, sometimes I give the, I don't know, a dollar. Right. But like, if you're really trying to get to a place and you're stuck in a deadlock and it's like, look, they're asking $50, I'm willing to pay 
you know, 20, right? And so you give like, I don't know, could you do 15? They might even push you to that 20 or that 25. But if you were to say like, honestly, like I'd be willing to pay, I don't know, anywhere from like 10 to $20 on this by saying 10 to 20. No, I get it. What so you still get your 20. You're still getting it for 20. They're like, okay, fine. I could do 20 because basically you've given them this range knowing uh, yeah. that like, I could see that. Right. So like, that's just, right. <laughs> but like, I mean, I, I just want to try that sometimes instead of, you know, just aiming for a number, right? Because think about that even like, cause when we talk about don't give the first number. So let's say they do give you a number, they say a hundred and you're wanting to get it down to 20 instead of just saying, well, how about yeah, instead of going the lowest I'd go is blah, yeah. blah, blah. Instead it's like, Hey, give I, them can, a range. I, I was could, thinking 15 to 20. I could probably do 10 to 20 on this is probably all I'd be able to spend immediately now they know 20 is your high end, even if it's not, even if your high end is 40, right? Like you've given them a range. And so they're going to pick whichever part of that range or lean towards whatever part of that range is best for them. I'm going to try that. I mean, if it really seems like we're at an impasse, I'll try that. We'll see. Even if you're not at an impasse, like what if instead of just giving a low, because if you say 20 and they're like, how about 25? But if you say 10 to 20, now they're going like, you know what I mean? Like. I don't know. I don't right know. now, it's theory work. to me. That's what I mean. It's theory. I want to. I want to play this out. So okay, I like that. But I would think for salary, that is a big deal. I not and I've shared this in the other podcast. I can't tell you. You know, when I was an administrator, I always always knew who were going to be the individuals that were not going to get paid like in the salary that they wanted, and people that were going to you know be the. <laughs> individuals that are getting paid as much. And, you know, I never had access to those numbers, but I, I could tell because some individuals, I always said this, when you write your number, like when I ask you, like, how much are you willing to work for? I, I always recommend leave it blank or write to be negotiated or, you know, it's something. Do not give that number because that automatically, number one, people are not going to move. But if they don't want you, that definitely is going to solidify they don't want you. Right. If you don't put a number, right, and you start talking, and he talks about it in this chapter about uh, pivot to non-monetary terms, right? I always say, and this is just my advice, and and again, I've, I think only two or three times I've been rejected from a position, which kind of hurt, and I've never been fired, and I've always moved myself up the chain wherever I needed to move. The, the one thing I've always, always done, and I can speak anecdotally and I know from others that I've talked to and from Chris Voss and books that I've read is that when you offer things that are non-monetary, you don't appear selfish and it works in your favor that you want to be a team player and you want to be part of that team. When all you talk about is money from day one, that turns people off right away. And I strongly encourage because you want your end goal. Yeah, we all want to make a certain salary or a certain amount of money, but you have to provide what is your value that you're going to bring and what value. And then when we talk about non-monetary terms, you got to think about, hey, what are other ways that they can help you and which in the end may financially be better off for you? Yeah, that's good. And I love, uh, so a couple of the other examples here were um, non-monetary terms use odd numbers, and then surprise uh, with a gift. And he kind of put all of those three things together uh, with the example of this person whose aunt was kidnapped at the beginning of our story, right? Which is this crazy thing. They wanted $150,000. The, um, the, basically the amount that they said, like they refused to go over is 5,000. This is what the negotiators are like. We would never negotiate more than $5,000 for these people because we know what it is they're really wanting the money for. And so the person, they did some of these techniques. They, they, 
pause. How am I supposed to do this? And without even offering any other numbers, they wouldn't give a number. The person's like, well, how much can you give? And it's like, well, how do you expect me to pay this much? I can't pay 150,000. And then instead of giving a number, they let the other side keep dropping on their own. Right. And eventually it drops all the way to 25,000. And then finally the, the person who's negotiating to get his, his aunt back says, I can do 3000. Right. So then now goes to this really low number. Then the person wants more than that. They want 10,000. And he goes, look, here's what I can give you. $4,751. The person says no. And he goes, well, I can give you $4,751 and I'll throw in a CD stereo set. Right. What you do at that point is you're basically saying, this is the exact amount of money I have. Even though we know the negotiator was saying, we've got $5,000 we could work with. But by using, when you say 5,000, what you're saying is these zeros are kind of like placeholders that can move any direction. But imagine that even at a negotiation at, at a garage sale, if someone's like, can you do, you know, hundred dollars. And you're like, no, I could do $50. And they're like, well, how about $70? But if you were like, I could do $53 and 25 cents. I, I don't know. How like, but if you were like, if you pulled out, like if you had exactly that amount, like stash in like a separate wallet and you like held out, like I could do $53, 25 cents. Actually, I have like a pack of gum in my car. I could well, throw I into, okay, but I you know what I mean? Like yeah. you're basically saying like, this is what I have. I don't think that's what he's saying. No, that's what he's saying. Okay. Yeah. But when he's talking about, I, I think, oh, in one party does and the other party saying, when you do these random numbers, it looks like you really thought out like what you want. Yeah. This is what, this is the number I can do. This is it. This is what I've thought out. This is what I have. <laughs> but he's talking about like, it was, he's talking about salary, but yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Try it out. I want to see, try it out at a garage sale. I've never done that. I have $21. I mean, I've done like, this is all I got in my pocket. Right. And you know, that's all I had in that pocket. Yeah. Right. But I, I've never done the, I have $53 and 21 cents for it. Like, I mean, I mean, at that point, like if they're willing to make the deal and they're like, and then, then at that point it's a loss aversion, right? It's like, all right. And you start to put the money away and it's like, well, that's all they have. So instead of saying, if you were to just say like, I could do 50, well, when you say 50, they're thinking, well, if you could do 50, you could do 60. But when you say I could do $53 and 21 cents, they're thinking he can't do 60. Right. Like he could do 5321. You know what? I have done that when I've had to because I had no choice and that's all I had. But yeah. And it worked. But, you know, it's interesting. I haven't thought about it intentionally. So, yeah, right. do it intentionally and then throw in, throw in a gift like, hey, throw and I got a, I got some coupons. I got, I got some, some eBay swag for you. I can I can I can Here's throw this podcast in shirt. And, and it shows that like one, you're tapped out and two, it might actually be beneficial. Like if you could say like, and, and he talks about the gift, not just like an, in a ha-ha way, like I could throw this in too, but it just isn't like a show of good faith. Like sometimes just actually doing a gift, like, hey, let me take you out to dinner and then we could talk about this more. And then, you know, you do it and you, you, that that kind of becomes a gift that helps lubricate the negotiation process. All right. All right. So uh, there's a couple, a couple of things before we close things up here. So he had talked about negotiating a better salary. Uh Again, I, I think this is what I just talked about, right? He talks about it. Be pleasantly persistent on non-salary terms. I can't tell you. So, you know, I've 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 coached individuals that I've said, hey, if, you know, especially teachers. I, I know teachers that would go to, uh, you know, they would go work at a certain private school. And I would say, hey, they may not be able to offer you money, but they could offer your kids free tuition. Or maybe you could get yourself a free lunch every day. You know what I mean? So... They're not thinking dollars and cents when it comes to that. Now, a smart administrator is smart manager might think that, but generally, if it doesn't hurt the cash flow, people more willing to negotiate, and then you can get back to the cash flow and you can still get your number, 
right? But again, pleasant. He says pleasant persistence is the kind of emotional anchoring that creates empathy with the boss and builds the right psychological environment for constructive discussion. And the more you talk about non-salary terms, the more likely you are to hear the full range of their options. So again, it's you don't know what you don't know until you start asking. So I would say Chris Voss is very big on like asking those questions, like what can we do? Now, eventually you want to land on money, but you shouldn't be the one that initiates that conversation. At least that's my thoughts. And at least that's what I'm getting from Chris Voss here. Yeah. Okay. You agree? All right. <laughs> All right. So salary terms without success terms is Russian roulette. what you get about that? Do you, do you think that works out? Like telling people, Hey, I want to be a team player. I want you to mentor me. Do you think that's, you think people can read through that? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think the idea that he was kind of trying to say here is um, look at more than just salary and specifically look at things like, Hey, one, like, what does it take to be successful here? What can I do here? Um, and then two, um, look at, okay, so this is what you can offer me now. So like, if you come to the place you're like, I really wanted, um, and I mean, this happened even where I'm working right now, cause schools are a little bit different. I'm not at a private school anymore, but I, I'm, so I'm at a, at a, a public school and they have set numbers. Like they can't, they, they can't negotiate always on prices as far as like their salary, but they can negotiate on non non salary items sometimes. Right. And so when it was like, Hey, how much can we get? And what I was looking for and what they actually were able to offer me legally by like their contracts was less than I was hoping for. Um, but then there's this thing of like, okay, so what are some non salary things like, okay, so what would it take uh, for me to get into a position or stipend or what things could you offer to allow me to get here? Right. And so when you do that, you're one saying, look, I'm a team player. I want to be here. I want to make the more. So whether that's a different position, whether that's, um, you know, extra courses I could take, what do I need to do to be at the place where I can be at this amount? And notice that individuals, when they hire, they want to hire people that want to grow in a company, right? He talked about ask, what does it take to be successful here? Right. And I think that's a big part. Like if it doesn't matter, like everyone wants and I'm broad brushing here, but most people want whatever individual they hire to take ownership and want to, because if you want to move up and you show you want to move up, it means you care about that, that company, you care about that business and people more likely to want you there. If you just say, well, I really want this job. Well, yeah, but so does everybody else that applied, right? What makes you different? What separates you from others? Right. And so, and we're talking to listeners here that are super young. They're looking to get their first, you know, jobs out of college or maybe out of high school, or there's individuals like me in their forties that are kind of transitioning, uh, you know, into a different workplace. So these are things definitely to think about, uh, because if, and he noticed what he says at the end of page 137, he says, he's talking about the example of angel here, but which made angel seem less aggressive and lower end and the lower end more reasonable in comparison. Right. So about that number that he's trying to get, which is on the lower end of the range, they were more willing to go with it because he didn't seem so aggressive because he wasn't just talking about money over and over and over again. So I don't know. I wonder if this is counter to uh, other entrepreneurs or gurus that we've read or that we may read down the line. Cause I don't know. I get the impression it may be. So we'll, we'll, I don't know. We'll take a clip from this and we'll attach it to another level up review whenever we hit that book. Cause I'm pretty sure this isn't like not, not the norm, but there's other voices out there. So you have any more you'd like to add here? No. All right. So, Hey, 
make sure that, you know that in all of this that you're not splitting the difference in all the both of these chapters it's very big all these tactics be intentional be you know very very much understanding that it's going to take some time it's going to take some patience to get there mike and i aren't even there uh but we're going to try to implement some of this so we'll see how that goes so uh with that being said hey make sure to be real be relevant and be reselling please, please.